Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor LeCain. You may wonder why, after 50 years of the modern women's movement, women still don't have parity in leadership positions. Why do we women still silence our own voices and not step into more leadership? We know there are external reasons holding women back, including lack of support for taking care of children and other family members, a responsibility which still falls heavily on women. Is there also something else at work psychologically inside women and men that makes us follow typical gender roles? My two guests today did a deep dive into this important question and wrote a fascinating book about what they discovered called Why Does Patriarchy Persist? Carol Gilligan was conducting research in psychology years ago when she realized that all the research on adolescence was done with boys. So she began to research girls. That led to her classic book in 1982 titled In a Different Voice, which revolutionized the field of psychology by paying attention to girls and women and describing their different developmental experiences. She has continued to study the psychology of girls and women for 40 years, first as a professor at Harvard, then at New York University. She shares her wisdom of a lifetime in her more recent book, Why Does Patriarchy Persist? Co-author Naomi Snyder is a psychoanalyst practicing in New York City. She lectures and publishes on the intersection of social injustice and psychological struggle focusing on tensions between patriarchy and self-actualization at both personal and political levels. Formerly, she was a human rights lawyer. She's a graduate of the London School of Economics and New York University, where she was a student of Carol Gilligan's and has a, is a graduate of the William Allenson White Institute Certificate Program in Psychoanalysis. Carol Gilligan and Naomi Snyder, welcome to All Together Now. Thank you. Thank you, Eleanor. We're delighted to be here. I am so, I love your book. I am so excited to talk with you. You don't know. Uh, and I have so many questions. I don't think an hour is going to be enough, but uh, let's see what we can do. Uh, and I love your book for many reasons. It's amazing, both for its important content and also, I think, a very innovative format where you take the reader on a journey of exploration. You do it jointly uh, in co-authorship with each other and also towards the end with some self-revelation of your own story. So it's a fascinating book in many, many ways. What I'd like to do, since it's such a deep and rich book, I want to convey some of what I've learned and what you're communicating to our listeners. So... I'd like to um, begin with just sharing my understanding of what's in the book, you correcting me where I want, because I'm like the lay person. I think the only book on psychology I've ever read is your book, Carol, <laughs> on In a Different Voice. So, um, so this could be like, this is what a lay person taking away from your book. So if you, I'll express to you what I learned and you correct me and amplify. And I'd like to begin 
with what we uh, what you had learned already about the dynamics of adolescents, boys and girls, as a foundation. We'll talk about that for a little bit, and then we'll dive into your incredible, profound insights that really stood out about the deeper psychology at work. Is that okay with you? If that's how we proceed, sure. No, that sounds great. Sure. I don't okay. know how we'll do this in an hour, but. <laughs> right, exactly. That was my question. Um, I'll talk fast. <laughs> uh, so let's begin with, I think the most important dynamic for me was understanding what is going on with adolescent girls. So this is my takeaway that you describe that girls go into adolescence, very confident, often very confident and outspoken, and then they become quiet people pleasers and they begin to ignore their own needs, discount their own thoughts to focus on fitting in uh, with others. They get the message that girls are supposed to serve others and put others ahead of themselves. Um, girls who speak with their own thoughts are labeled, you know, too loud, stupid, crazy, angry. So girls begin to hide what they really think and feel. And so they silence themselves. And the girls who kind of do that kind of get rewarded with different things. And the girls who stay outspoken uh, get labeled as shrill, angry, too emotional, too aggressive. And that we go through this experience and girls kind of protest because they want to keep their own voice. But there are very strong forces pushing them in the direction of these kind of traditional gender roles that leads to millions of girls hiding their true thoughts, which then get buried. And then we as women silence our authentic voice. Is that a fair summary of what we understand about the psychology <clears throat> of girls? Eleanor, it's a brilliant summary. I mean, it's a totally brilliant <laughs> summary. And let me hear that. So I feel terrific. I'm just so happy to hear you say that. And I just want to mention two things. First of all, to talk about girls um, and the strength of girls, the strength of girls. And if you look right now in the world we're living in now, two girls have had a profound effect on our society. Mm -hmm. And one is Greta Thunberg. Her one-person school strike provoked the largest climate demonstration in history. I mean, larger than any of the adults and so forth and so on. So one girl in her voice, and of course the second is Darnella Williams. In the mm -hmm. whole crowd that watched George Floyd being you know, killed, she was the one person who held up her cell phone. I mean, she wasn't the only one there with a cell phone, but she's the one who held up her phone and filmed the entire thing. And the conviction of the policeman, it couldn't have happened without her. So first of all, I think we have to notice these girls right now in our midst have had a profound effect. And what I'm saying is, to me, it made sense. These are girls. And girls' voices, are, they are outspoken. They're human voices. And then the second point, and you made this very brilliantly, and my question, of course, is why would girls, in a sense, give up? their authentic voices. I mean, if you want to be in a relationship, it means being present and it means saying what you're feeling and thinking. 
and then the interesting thing is in the time I was doing the work with girls, because I spent a lot of time with girls in a lot of school and after school settings, I can't tell you how often during the day I would hear girls told, shh, don't say that. People won't appreciate it if you say that. And you will sound too loud, too angry. Too the, and the incentives held out. You, you want to go to a top college. You want to be included in the kind of girls people want to be with. You want to have friends. You want to have relationships. And girls were really puzzled because they said, if I'm not saying what I'm really feeling and thinking, then I'm not in relationship. So they were asked to go into sort of faux relationships to give up real relationships in order to have so-called relationships. And um, the other thing I would just mention right now to illustrate what you just said about the work, think about the women who, who have strong voices and are outspoken, like AOC. In the, I think my resistors are in the House of Representatives now. And what are they being called? I mean, you know, they're, they're being criticized in all the ways that. So this is a real struggle between human psychology and the, what we call the forces of patriarchy. And the, the, question, the research on girls led to the question, isn't this happening to boys also? And the answer is yes, and it happens earlier when they're little boys between four and seven and therefore don't have the ability of the adolescents to really reflect on and talk about what's happening to them because girls were narrating this initiation uh, and into the, the structures of the society that in the name of gender would basically stunt everybody's humanity. That was the essence of it. So thank you for that beautiful I'm summary. <laughs> of course. I'm so glad you raised boys because that was one of the great insights for me in your book, of which there are many. So I encourage listeners, please get this book, Why Does Patriarchy Persist? Really important book. I just want to underscore what you just said, because this is what I find most exciting about your work with the two of you, is that these pre-adolescent girls are strong, they're bright, they're vocal, they're confident. And um, it, that voice and those values, I believe, are exactly what the country and the world needs to get on a better track. But it, precisely because so many girls and women have silenced our authentic selves to, to fit in and for various reasons, which you go into, um, we're holding ourselves back. But the exciting thing for me is if we can get enough people understanding what you know, we can liberate that voice with inside the women and have that power come out like AOC is doing it. I think inside every woman is that authentic pre-adolescent girl who says, we are going in the wrong direction so fast and we need to turn it around. So um, I, I think you're, you have like a game-changing book here if people understood your message. So thank you for that. Now back to the book. I was going to mention the girl, uh, young woman who spoke at the inauguration, who read her poem. Yeah. That's another one. Yes, Andrea exactly. Andrea Yeah. So it's, yep. I, you know, women are going to need to lead the way here or we're going to go down under. <laughs> But we need to do it with our authentic selves, not with ourselves that are fitting into the whole scene that already is. Otherwise, we just perpetuate the same thing that's been going on. And that's headed for 
catastrophe. So um, now the boys, here's, here's my takeaway on the boys, because I never understood this, that you say boys who, when they are young, actually feel their expression, they know their emotions, they express them, but then they get uh, laughed at or ridiculed as they age, they get ridiculed for being feminine, uh, having emotions, and they're told to toughen up, to be strong, uh, be more of a man, and suppress their emotions. Um, so they learn how to hide their emotions, hide their vulnerability, and then they shift away from being in touch with their families feelings to being stronger. Um, and is that a fair summary of what you see? Like that's the shift yes, from, yeah, yeah. from the I boys' point of view. It. Right, it's between ages four and seven when they start school. And if they wanna be one of the boys or a real boy, not a mama's boy or you know, uh, gay or so forth, that's what they have to do is they have to hide. You could just say parts of their humanity that are gendered feminine because when being a right. boy means not being a girl. So they distance themselves from that part of themselves. So, you know, you could say inside every woman is an outspoken 11 year old girl who has a strong voice and inside every man is an emotionally intelligent four year old boy. And that's really interesting because if you start listening for what happened, what happened to that four year old emotionally intelligent boy, what happened? to that girl who actually said what she was feeling and thinking or what she saw or what she knew. Fantastic. Uh, Naomi, do you want to chime in here on anything? No, it's just, it's been wonderful listening to this conversation. And I think I can probably speak for Carolyn and myself when I say this, it's so um, enlivening and exciting to hear someone else capture your thoughts in, 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 the, the the points that you were trying to make and just kind of get them and elaborate on them. So no, this is, I've, I've just been really enjoying the conversation and um, nothing to really add so far. Fantastic. So um, I love this. And I think our mission here in a, some ways is to liberate that pre-adolescent strong girl voice in every woman and to liberate that man connecting with emotions because if we can do that for the men too, then there's a more greater sensitivity and responsiveness uh, to what's happening. Like we are destroying life at the moment and the things going on. And if men are cut off from their emotions, they're not gonna be so responsive to that. So that to me is what I feel in part our mission is, and you are giving us a roadmap mm-hmm. on how to do it. And um, I want to get into your great insight in your book. Before we get there, though, there's an important piece of your discussion of what goes on with, you know, boys as they suppress emotion, girls as they suppress their voice. And that is, they don't really like doing that. And that there's actually a real struggle that goes on. And girls and boys both resist being forced into that, um, those gender roles. And 
you did the research with girls over decades, listening to them, and you heard in their voices this struggle going on. So can you talk a little bit about what's the struggle that happens there where you know, the, the girls try to keep their authentic voice and the boys try to keep their attachment to emotion, but they end up not doing that. What happens in that struggle? Well, I, Power, so well, I, I mean, you know, there's a, yeah, you answered. No, so I, I love to hear you talk about it. Well, in some in some ways, I mean, this is Carol's research, so I don't I don't want to speak for her, but I I think in some ways this is sort of the um the question that we were getting at in the book, which is that um that Carol observed this resistance in in um in her research and um and, and Carol's research also sort of coincided with a whole, and was part of, and one of the kind of, part of the genesis of a whole shift in the um, human sciences. Away from the idea that kind of, we're all sort of um, essentially sort of the Hobbesian ideal of kind of survival of the fittest and each out for our own kind of best interest, but actually the idea that we're inherently relational beings and that, our psychological health rests upon um, connection. And so that's that resistance that Carol observed both in young boys, but in adolescence girls was essentially a resistance to the loss of relationship. And the question that we, we had therefore was if, if, um, mutually responsive relationship is at the core of our human needs and desires. Why do we sacrifice that for, the, for all of the benefits of, of patriarchy? I mean, it's, it's obvious that, um, that there are sort of these clear external privileges that are granted to the, the um, strong, independent, white privileged male and also for the good woman but i think that the key point of um carol's work is but it comes at a great psychological cost so really wondering what happens to the resistance therefore if we have the capacity for resist to resist what stops it um and so it, it required a psychological examination of what is that process that leads the way from resistance what carol describes as a healthy resistance to um political resistance kind of speaking truth to power that adolescent girl who says no i'm i'm not gonna shut up and be a good girl and what then leads the way to that becoming what she calls a psychological resistance that disconnection from one's honest voice and that was sort of the genesis of of the book i mean i I don't want to kind of take us too far off track, but I can I can explain sort of what we then discovered in terms of what does happen to the resistance. Let, let's hold that for a minute. I want to stay at this pivotal moment where the outspoken girl and the emotionally expressive boy turn into more of the patriarchal roles and the girls are silenced and uh, the boys kind of detach from their emotion that struggle you talk about it 
and you say what a very high cost mm. that has, that this is a moment. And this was another great insight in your book that I found that at that struggle, the high cost can include depression. It can include eating disorders. It inc can include learning disability. And even in some extreme cases, suicide. And that this is a very serious struggle that our you know, young teens and pre you know, are going through. And we need to have compassion about it. And I remember, Carol, I saw you speak many years ago. It was must have been in the early 80s. And maybe it was at, I think I might have been at Wellesley. And it was a program where a wealthy businessman had a daughter who had committed suicide. And he uh, donated a lot of money to the study of the psychology of adolescent girls. He was so upset that his daughter was gone and had killed herself. He wanted to prevent that from happening to other girls and other parents. But um, I don't know if you remember that experience, but uh, this is a very serious shift that's happening. And if you had any comment on that, I'd welcome that. Well, I mean, I, I, I think what, what you're, you're getting at, and, and it's, that it's extremely important, is that the costs are very high on both sides of this. I mean, if you say there is a natural resistance, like the healthy body resists infection, you know, so the healthy psyche resists loss of basic human capacities. And so this loss has a huge cost, but also uh, the resistance is coming up against the structure of society, which is very invested in women not speaking and in boys, you know, not having sort of the kinds of emotions that would interfere with their being able to do the kinds of things that men are expected to do. So it's not for no reason. Nobody does something like this for no reason. So you have a real struggle with costs on both sides. And that's why, I mean, the first piece I wrote about the girls' work was called Joining the Resistance. Like you would try to support somebody's immune system, build up their immune system. It's like, let's join this healthy resistance to aspects of this, our society that really are, are humanly destructive. And that was very encouraging in one sense to say that the resistance is within us. It's when it, within all of us. But the thread is that, you know, if a girl keeps talking about what she actually feels or what she really thinks or what she actually sees or what she knows on the basis of her experience, nobody's going to want to be with her. I mean, the, the line that led to Naomi's mm -hmm. writing the paper that started our whole process of working, the conversation between us that led to the book was there was a girl named Iris, a high school student. She was the valedictorian of her class. She said, if I were to say what I was really feeling and thinking, no one would want to be with me. My voice would be too loud. And then she said, but you have to have relationships. And I said to her, yes, but if you're not saying what you're really feeling and thinking, then where are you in these relationships? And she saw, I mean, it was like she was heading into a blind alley and she mm -hmm. could see it. So you can't just say to the girls, keep your voice because they're her real consequence. You have to really address also 
you know, what presents girls with a, a choice that's psychologically incoherent, which is you can either have your voice or you can have relationships. You know, whereas in fact, if you don't have your voice, you're not in relationship. The interesting thing to me was how many girls saw this. I mean, they were aware of it and they turned to women and they said, basically, do you know about this? And women were very, we, women were uneasy about having a real conversation with girls mm -hmm. about what do we know about this? What do we do about this? How have we managed it? But that was the conversation that girls wanted to have with women. And Naomi, well, so there's that, it was that line of irises that led to Naomi's insight and her question, which really is what started the book. Fantastic. And, and just to underscore that you talk in your book, how deep the roots of these gender roles go in patriarchy. I mean, you're talking like, this is predating Aeschylus in 450 BCE. Um, so this has been going on a very long time. And even though with the modern women's movement, we may think we are for gender equality, but sometimes we have these unconscious experiences of forces within us that we don't, we're not even aware. So you end up with a situation where even adult women who want to be supportive of girls coming up can sometimes steer the girls into these traditional gender roles as a way to protect them. And yeah, uh, because they get, they get scared because they know what can happen when you challenge these gender roles and, and they're right. So, I mean, that's why my book was, or my article in our book, a book I wrote was called Joining the Resistance, which is, you can't just say to girls, deal with this on your own. You have to join them and lend your whole, you know, adult men and women. I remember the first time I presented my girls were, I was surrounded in the you know, coffee hour afterward by fathers who said, I love my pre-adolescent daughter. She's so outspoken. She's so honest. She's so it's fun to be with. I don't ever want her to lose that. And I looked at the fathers and I said, then you're involved in social change. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, that's, what's, that's what we're talking about here. I mean, we're talking about the move from patriarchy to democracy genuine democracy where everyone has a voice. Right, and everyone has an authentic voice and that's what we're trying to get at here. Um, so uh, let's now move to the discovery you made about the connection between the psychology of loss and the psychology of these adolescent girls. Talk a little bit about What's this insight that you had that helps us understand this pivot point towards traditional gender roles even more deeply? Naomi, I think that's your cue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll take it from here. So I think, um, you know, it's funny when whenever Karen and I present, we always have this back and forth where she's like, take it from here and I'm like but it kind of begins with you but I it began with my sort of um my associations to Carol's work when um I she was my teacher in a in a class entitled resisting injustice um and it was really reading um Carol's descriptions of um these 
kind of girls and boys initiation into um, patriarchy that I suddenly sort of felt like I had a language and framework through which to understand my own experience. And so we, um, we did reflection papers for the class. And so um, the week where we read The Birth of Pleasure, which is actually the first time Carol in her work joined sort of her research on, on girls with, um, with a conceptualization of patriarchy and, um, and, and, and basically names patriarchy as the force that comes in and disrupts these relationships and creates the sort of psychological sequelae of struggle that follows. Um, and as I was reading this work, I, I, I felt the resonance, especially sort of as she says with Iris, I felt like that could have been, been me. And I had the question sort of why? Like why, like Iris, did, did I sacrifice my honest voice and why do I continue to do so all the time, even knowing the incredible psychological costs that come with it? And my associations were to my father. And to my father died when I was five years old. And kind of through through therapy, I'd learned that once you've kind of experienced an incredible loss like that you will do whatever you can to avoid further loss and so one of the mechanisms which I had for for kind of trying to hold on to relationship was to essentially never really be myself because if I wasn't really myself then I could never really be in relationship so I'd never really lose relationship almost like beating beating someone to the punch and I had the question I knew that for me, why it made psychological sense to silence my honest voice, to detach from authentic relationship. But I couldn't understand why in the normal course of development, other girls and boys were making a similar kind of... This meeting is being recorded. And um, so the question that I, I asked and I posed was, could it be that patriarchy is serving a similar psychological function, that essentially by demanding the sacrifice of relationship in the name of um, kind of being a good woman or an honorable man, at the same time, it's also therefore kind of protecting us from the loss of connection if we were to be in real relationship, that essentially hierarchy become domination and submission become a defense against the kind of risks of sort of being in mutually responsive relationships where there's always the, the potential for um, rupture and therefore loss. Um, so that was the, that was the, the question that sort of got the, the ball rolling and um you know carol said to me that if if we really want to think about um the connection between patriarchy and loss we're really going to have to look at the psychoanalytic literature and in particular she suggested to go to the work of john bowlby and um and he's I mean, he's known as the father of attachment theory, but really his 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 kind of um, his work really revolutionized both um, our understanding of human attachment and the fundamental need 
of relationships um in and and the the impact that loss of relationship has on children but also sort of the the importance of relationship across the kind of life cycle but um he articulates um through his studies of of young children separated from um their parents whether it was in ho for hospital stays or during the during the war um he he noted three um responses to loss the first response he noticed was protest a young child will call out for the lost parent the 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 parent that is not emotionally available or physically present they will do what they can to repair the connection but when that protest fails it leads to despair and when um when you see that despair phase it's kind of a listlessness what sort of looks like a kind of depression and then the following phase is what he describes as detachment and it's he sort of called it a kind of compulsive self a faux sort of independence where the child will seem as if they no longer care about the um the parent that's not available um but actually beneath that not caring is a simmering sort of anger and 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 hatred and in later work he noticed a, a kind of inverse of that which is where the child will sort of adopt a kind of compulsive caregiving where they will take look after the other person in the hope of eventually getting the care that they've lost so it was really looking at the work of bolby that really kind of led to our three discoveries um and I'm sorry, we're kind of a little short on time. Could you just like quickly summarize what the key learning yeah. was there? So essentially what we saw was that the trajectory of loss that Bowlby observed in young children was precisely the same trajectory as Carol had observed in young boys and girls. Resistance, what he calls protest, leading to self-silencing, and eventually the sort of pseudo-independence of the um of the young boys and the compulsive caregiving and silencing of of the women so two things from that is one it kind of reinforces the idea that patriarchy involves an encounter with loss the loss of relationship and that the what we consider to be um kind of the normative roles of um what it is to be a healthy young boy and a healthy young woman a kind of the good woman and the um the independent man are in fact what Bowlby describes as pathological responses to loss. They are pathological, meaning they're defensive, they serve an adaptive function, but over time they become pathological because they, dis they, they, they deny you the very thing that you originally were mourning, that you've given up relationship in the, in the hope of um, ever avoiding uh, a loss that's come to seem irreparable and inevitable. And the third so that, discovery, oh, go ahead. very quickly, the third discovery, and this is um, Carol's favorite. So maybe Carol, you should describe this one. Or I I know, just, which was really, which was just, this is the one that stunned me, <clears throat> is that the, with relationships, in every relationship, we all know this in every day, relationships, you move in and out of touch with somebody. 
we're in touch and then we're out of touch and we lose touch. So the key to maintaining relationships is learning how to repair the inevitable breaks in connection, the inevitable moments of losing touch. So it's that capacity for repair that's key to being able to live in a relationship, an ongoing relationship with anyone. So what patriarchy does, because to maintain a hierarchy, you have to undercut this relational capacity in human beings, is that the move to repair, uh, it goes after the move to repair the rupture. And so that's for girls saying, and you can, you can we write this dialogue in our book, a woman says, you know, I feel we're just out of touch with each other. Just this past week, I feel like we're really not listening to each other. And then the man says, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're always complaining. Or for the man, the move to repair, which is to register his feelings of loss, registers as unmanly. So what it does is that the very move to repair the rupture calls into question one's sense of oneself as a woman, as a man, and therefore uh, it, it, it sabotages the move to repair. It, it subverts the move to repair the rupture in relationship. So it makes the loss of relationship irreparable. And at that point, you can establish any form of injustice, racism, uh, homophobia, I mean, where you elevate one group of people as superior and one group of people as inferior, caste systems, I mean, all of that. Uh, and so you basically subverted the resistance. And you ask, why does patriarchy persist? We know a lot of the reasons because some people benefit from it and people with power don't like to give up power. But also, and this is the inside of our book, we are complicit in this persistence because it by, by making the loss of relationship irreparable, we give up relationship and therefore it protects us against loss, though at the price of having what most deeply we want, which is to live in touch with ourselves and other people. So the book is both optimistic. It says, <laughs> you know, the, the solution is within ourselves and also realistic in the sense of you start to challenge these gender roles and you'd be surprised at the force that comes at you. I mean, I think that was one of the most amazing things for me personally in doing the girls' work is I was just trying to bring girls' voices into developmental psychology, which is a rather straightforward thing. And I found that the girls' work was the most radical work I did, that the investment uh, in girls not saying what they really felt and not seeing what they saw was, was just huge. So it was like I had no idea we would come up against so much resistance because what we were doing was promoting health, girls' healthy development. And the women who got involved in the projects with girls, like the fathers of the four and five-year-old boys, it was really enlivening for them. They got back in touch, exactly what you said at the beginning, Eleanor. They got back in touch with parts of themselves that they had kind of held at arm's length, you know? And so it was like a but then they came up against the forces that are marshaled against this happening. So it's really a struggle against of our humanity, against a particular form of social living together that we have constructed. And then you can go into, you know. So right. what Naomi and I are saying is the solution is within us, but also you have to understand what the problem is because patriarchy persists in part, as you say in your opening, because of 
we've internalized those voices. They speak within ourselves. It's not just outside us. And, and it does for right. good reason. I think I, I always want, no one gives up relationship without a good reason. I mean, you know. Yeah, well, and I, I think it's, uh, it's a profound insight that you came on uh, through your joint work. Uh, the, the, you know, the similarities between the psychology of loss and the psychology of patriarchy. And that really helping to understand what is that internal psychology that's happening in girls and women. Um, I want to get back to what you said about solutions in a minute. But given that I live in Washington, D.C., and I work very much in the sphere of politics and government, I want to talk a little bit about what was going through my mind about some of the applications of your research and what it means for women who are getting active, maybe even running for office or being in office, um, and how women are voting. So let's talk a minute about the political implications of your work and how we can draw on that understanding to make things better. Um, question number one, I mean, you talk about, Carol, you gave a speech the day after the 2016 election when Trump was uh, became president. Um, can you, with all you know about girls and women, can you help us understand how is it possible that so many women could support someone like Trump who so obviously denigrates women? How did that happen? First of all, I think you have to say, how, do you, how come so many white women Right, because what's the majority, really interesting, majority of Black it, women didn't vote for him. Thank you, Black women. <laughs> black women black women were the group with the largest numbers that voted against Trump, both in 2016 and even more, 2020. Uh, yeah, 2020, it was like 98%, more than Black men, more than any other women. And in fact, you know, Stacey Abrams, I mean, she's responsible for the votes in Georgia, so forth. So I think we have to, we have to ask a much more nuanced question about women, which I think is fantastic. And all the people who talk about intersectionalities, this is exactly about inter the intersections of race and gender here. And you know, I think it's really interesting because in a sense, white women are invited into the patriarchy in a way that black women are not. And you know, what was appalling was that close to half of, or maybe it was a little more than half of white women voted for Trump. And I mean, there are a lot of ways to think about that, including, uh, you know, um, their relationship to white men who were dealing with what they felt was the loss of, of their manhood and their masculinity and the fears that, you know, they were going to lose their privileged position in society. And a man whose masculinity is in question is a very dangerous man to live with because he's violent. I mean, violent becomes mm -hmm. a way, violence is a way of kind of restoring his sense of himself as a man and superior and so forth. So, I mean, you also have to ask what is the situation that many of these women were in to understand why they're doing it. But uh, so that's one thing. The other thing I think that's really interesting to talk about is Kamala Harris. And to me, there's been surprisingly little talk about this historic election of a woman, an African-American, a South Asian woman, first time in history to position of vice president. And I mean, I think that the kind of, you know, all the comments about 
her voice and what's wrong with her. I mean, you know, it's like my work would predict that, that, you know, her womanhood is, is being challenged and on the line. Then you can talk about what happened to Hillary Clinton in 2016, even though she got 3 million more votes than Trump. I mean, but the, the sense of what happens to a woman who steps into, or Elizabeth Warren. I mean, you, can, you, you start to see when, when women step forward politically, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, uh, it's the category has to be, you have to talk about black women and the extraordinary, um, almost freedom of voice of a black woman like Stacey Abrams. I mean, I just, I was so impressed when she lost the governorship and she said, she said she sat Shiva for 10 days. In other words, she, she acknowledged the loss, she responded to the loss, and then she decided, I'm gonna do something about this. And she did. I mean, she worked and she organized. So, you know, we have examples now on both sides of this, of the yeah. kinds of issues we're writing about, of the resistance. And I think there's much more of the resistance out in the open right now, Stacey Abrams, Kamala Harris, AOC, I mean, the whole squad, you know, and so forth, plus the girls, which I think is just fantastic. I mean, I want to say their names again, Greta Thunberg and Darnella Williams. I mean, they have really changed history. And at the same time, we also see the complicity. And what you can say at bottom is without women's complicity, you can't have the persistence of patriarchy. So the investment in women's complicity, and particularly the investment in the complicity of white women, is huge. Harold, as you're talking, what would you no, just as you're talking, a thought that I had when you mentioned Hillary Clinton and was the idea that wondering sort of how many of the votes of women for Trump were much as much a vote for Trump and a vote against Hillary, because I think part of the internalization um, is sort of that sort of the shame, the the um, the inner hatred that we develop of, of our own honest voice, we then can project onto other women. And, and I think when you contrast that with precisely what you're describing with AOC and the squad, is actually it's it's women's allegiance being not to other men, but to, to their sisters, to kind of, um, to actually joining um, jo joining the resistance, as, as, as you say. But I think in a way that, when we hear that honest voice in another woman, it creates a sort of kernel of tension within us because it's essentially the question of which way are we going to go now? Because there's there's a choice. And it's, as I think Carol's saying, it's not an easy choice to make for many women. There are costs that will come with shifting that allegiance. Right, exactly. And, <clears throat> you know, I what i see happening in some ways is like it's almost like there's two camps of women one of them are the women who went through this whole silencing and fitting in thing at adolescence and they continued on with that even the women who step forward and run for office that there's there's a way that they're kind of fitting into what's already there they're not coming fully from their authentic voice of what they really believe deep down. So they fit into the state house or to Congress and they're women, but they're not really bringing the voice of the radical change that would come if women, I think if we tapped our authentic voices 
speaking out about what's happening that we have so many children in this country who are hungry, speaking out about what we're just doing, destroying the environment and our planet. So there, there's the women who kind of fit in, but then we have now this other group of women, which seems to be growing. And you mentioned several of them, AOC and the squad and um, Greta Thunberg. I'd add Amy Klobuchar. I mean, I think she's very outspoken. And I think, I mean, there's the sense of, I think we can recognize and that sense of there is a, a, a woman who, who says what she really feels and thinks. And I think that there, it stirs something in, I think that I agree with Naomi. Naomi, it stirs something in all women. And if you have an internal conflict around that, it's easy to project. And one of the things that's true of patriarchy, uh, and you can see this, I mean, it's just, all you have to say to women is remember seventh grade, because there's permission to turn against other women. I mean, everybody is horrified. It's like, you know, when there's the click and the in-girls and the out-girls, and that sense of, I remember when I was doing the work with girls and looking at women and, and saying, well, you know, and the girls were too. Do the women interfere with girls turning on each other at this point? Because that is sanctioned in patriarchy. It's the girls are supposed to align with men and turn against other women, particularly those who don't, don't fit in, don't conform. So you really have to interrupt that dynamic. And you know, it's like, do adults intervene when boys start beating each other up? I mean, that's another place because that's the same thing that happens. A boy who is seen as not a real boy gets beaten up at the age of five and six in first grade and so forth. So the question is, there, yeah. there are, you said this before, there are clear moments to intervene and strengthen a healthy resistance and not give social sanction to, let's just say this, boys beating each other up or girls turning against one another and really being, I mean, vicious often using their psychological acuity to, to torture other girls, you know. Right, exactly. And that's what I consider like the enforces of patriarchy. It's girls do it to girls and boys do it to boys <laughs> and adults do it to the adolescents. So there's like, you kind of get surrounded by that. And, um, you know, and, you mentioned about having the, the woman run. Um, we've got the senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, who I worked on her first campaign to get her elected. But when I was reading your book and you talk about when boys or men are aggressive, that's seen as being strong and that's a leader. When women are aggressive or what could be seen as aggressive, they're seen as a pushy, strident, shrill. And that even you say, I'm fighting for something as a woman, you're seen as being selfish, like you're fighting for something you care about. And I, I immediately thought of Elizabeth Warren, you're like, I'm a fighter, I care about this, I'm fighting for economic justice. And, but how poorly she did surprisingly in the presidential race but i think she kind of got caught in that dynamic of being labeled a woman who was a fighter and maybe too aggressive as did hillary clinton but the fighting one was so clearly uh, that dynamic fit elizabeth warren but that's very tough for then for a woman to show you're strong enough to be a leader i could be a mayor i can be a governor i can be a president all executive positions and yet, if you're too strong, 
you're seen as uh, shrill or aggressive. What advice do you have for women candidates who want to be executives to navigate this narrow pathway? Well, I mean, you know, with, I mean, I think of Stacey Abrams because I think she has done it so well. And I think we have models now of women who aren't, you know, who people turn against them and they don't pull back. But in fact, they find ways to, to, to stay in relationship, to stay present, to stay on their voices. I mean, honestly, <laughs> you know, it's like when, when I think it was at the, when she came to the Congress that Greta Thunberg, you know, people said to her, don't you care about your future? in school because she was on school strike. And she said, if you don't care about my future, why should I? And that sense of not being cowed by somebody challenging you or not immediately going over to their side, but staying in your own experience and staying with your own voice. And I think we have examples now of women who are doing that. Elizabeth Warren is, a, is a, I'm glad you, you know, we're talking about her because not only did she lose, but she lost in Massachusetts, which was really- I'm in shocking. third in Massachusetts, her own state. That's right, that's right. So that's, is, that's to say there's still a problem. And it, 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 in an ironic way, and I say this without having thought a lot about it, it may be harder for white women, you know, because they're supposed to, I mean, in a certain sense, uh, you know, it's as though they're, they're invited in and they're refusing. So, they're not fitting into the mold. That maybe a lot of people wouldn't expect a black woman to fit in the mold because they have a different That's experience, so a she, different perspective. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the mold was was never offered to them. So it's not that they were, and but, I mean, I think it's really, I I, I really think, I think we are seeing a range of responses on the part of women right now. I think this is a a really, really interesting moment. It's a fascinating moment. Exactly you know, right. Before, and I felt this very strongly when the children were being kept in cages at the borders, I thought, where are the women of America? Why weren't we all down there just saying, you cannot do this to children? This is just no way to treat children. Uh, and I think the fact that we weren't, I mean, how come? And then I thought, right, and we, I remember because in my generation, there was the women of Green and Common that stopped the building of the nuclear base in Scotland. And there was the women of the Plaza de Mayo in Argentina who came out every Thursday to protest the disappeared, you know, the, their children. And I think it's a really important question, you know, where are the women of this country when something like that is going on? Well, I would um, say though the women in this country really rose up when when Trump did get elected. I think it shocked everybody, including himself. Um, but the women the day after Trump was inaugurated, the women's march, like in the streets all over, like uh, huge numbers of people, women marched and then women voted in the midterm election voted in the highest and record numbers in the 2020 election to get them out. And that's kind of the, to me, the next question is now that women are 
kind of like waking more engaged political government. And if we don't get involved, bad things can happen. Um, by the way, I'm writing a book about that. It's like, what is the next focus for women to step forward now? We've marched, we've voted, we got Trump out, we got Biden in. What can we do now about uh, these major challenges? That's great, because you're absolutely right. And yeah. the development um, work says, if girls and women don't speak up, nobody speaks up about this. It's not a, it's a human issue. It's not a women's issue ultimately, but women's voices are crucial because we're initiated later at adolescence and we have more capacity to talk about this. Also, we're not right. on the same plan. Uh, we just have another uh, minute or two before we wrap up. And I'd like to circle back to what you mentioned before about, um, you know, kind of a solutions focus. What are the moments to intervene at the adolescent stage to help girls keep their authentic voice, to help women reclaim it if it's deep and buried? And uh, any other advice you have on solutions? If you're a woman now, like, what do you do to deal with all these forces that have been at play on us, even at an unconscious level throughout our lives? Solutions. Naomi, you want to talk? You're working with women now. One thing that comes to my mind is um, the word resonance. Um, the, that was a kind of a, a big word in our, our piece. It's, I think, what kind of and when you began talking about the, the structure of the book, there's a kind of resonance to that, that it's our two voices in conversation. So I think the, the, the main thing is that the whole point about that Carol's making about our discovery about the shaming role of gender is that it, it, it shames the capacity for protest, which is so crucial to repair. So as long as there is, I think, someone that is providing resonance for that, voice of protest it becomes like a kind of lifeline for it so that even though you may be coming up against all sorts of shaming and um silencing that there is at least sort of one person one outlet where you you feel a resonance for that voice and I think that's a crucial way of sustaining it I think that's great and you reminded me of a quote from the woman from Ireland who won a Nobel Peace Prize. And she said, courage calls to courage everywhere. And I think every time a woman speaks from her authentic self, her genuine truth, that that resonates with us at a deep level, and that it helps free us to speak from our authentic voice. And I want to thank you both so much for speaking in your authentic voice and for doing an amazing piece of work that I encourage all our listeners to buy this book, Why Does Patriarchy Persist? Um, uh, it'll blow your mind. It's fascinating, essential reading to understand what's going on and what we do about it. Uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Uh, Carol Gilligan and Naomi Snyder, thank you so much for being with us on the show today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Eleanor. What a great pleasure. Good luck with your book. Thank you.